Welcome to Startup Confidential, what industry insiders will never tell you that you need to know if you're building a consumer brand. With your host, best-selling author of Ramping Your Brand, Dr. James Richardson. Let's do this. Welcome to episode 102, part two of my 2021 interview with Professor Tom Eisenman of Harvard Business School. Let's get to it. He is also a faculty co-chair of the Arthur Rock Center for Entrepreneurship at HBS. He's been there since 1997. So this is part two of our interview, and this one's going to be on more advanced topics related to startup failure. Tom, talk to us about the speed trap, because you have an interesting way of looking at that that I, I think my listeners need to hear. So the speed trap in a sentence is startup that grows too fast, but we have to ask why. A big reason why is entrepreneurs love to grow. Um, it's how a lot of them. It's how a lot of them keep score. And the way it plays out in a lot of businesses, and and I think this is true in tech and outside tech. A venture gets some momentum. They find the early adopters who love the product, who spread word about the product through word of mouth, and who buy and buy and buy again. And all that is going great. Time to raise money and scale. They can, the investors, whether they be venture capital, private equity, whoever, angels, come in and they come in at a high price for the equity with the expectation of continued growth, you know, in a perfect world, hyper growth. Uh, and the entrepreneur doesn't need her arm twisted because she wants to grow too. That's how entrepreneurs keep score. So everybody's in sync. But in the background, other entrepreneurs have noticed this. So our students launched Birchbox, sort of makeup samples in a $10 a month subscription box. And within months, they were cloned. And then, you know, within months after that, anything you could put in a subscription box, craft whiskeys, got it, designer socks, you know, our, our MBAs were like, they were cranking out subscription offerings, um, you know, crafts for children. And so the clones come and then sometimes big tech wakes up and they can copy you and they might be motivated to. And sometimes the big incumbents in your space sort of wake up to some interloper in their space, mm. you know. So competition's coming in. And the other thing that happens is that cadre of early adopters to get the next wave of growth, which you need to satisfy the growth expectations, the hyper growth expectations, they All almost right. by definition aren't as interested in your product as the first wave were. So got to discount your price. You've got to the first group came all organically. Now you have to do paid marketing of some sort or yeah. another, advertising, promotion, whatever it is. Uh, but more bad things happen. So if you have any kind of business that humans, you need more humans as the business scales, and this is most businesses, not all software businesses, sometimes they scale <laughs> right. magically, but right. pretty much everything else, um, if you triple the business, you're going to need a lot more humans to mm. answer phones, to pack things in a warehouse, whatever it is. Hiring them and training them is no small feat. And this is being done in a new venture that has no systems for managing people, no systems for inventory planning, no systems for much of mm. anything. So you're putting in the systems at the same time you're scaling the thing up, you're hiring middle managers for the first time who are going to manage these legions of new employees. And it's just easy for all that to turn chaotic, particularly since entrepreneurs resist what they feel is bureaucracy, right? You're talking about systems and processes, like what could be worse for us? So, so more bad things happen, which is you start to get some cultural noise, um, company mm. culture. Um, there's an old guard, which are the people who were present at the creation, who love the founder, who believe in the company's mission, mm. who understand it. 
um, who were the jacks of all trades who sort of shifted from one crisis to another as, as needs required. And now they got all these specialists, you know, the person who is in charge of intellectual property law, the warehouse management expert and so forth. And the specialists mm. think that the old guard is clueless about their contributions. And the old guard thinks that the new guard is uh, clueless about what the company really stands for and why it's important. Right. And, and then you get you get fiefdoms too. The warehouse has a different subculture than the marketing unit and so forth. Mm. And there's finger pointing and you haven't sort of figured out how to do cross-functional coordination. So the culture mm. goes wobbly. And meanwhile, just the economics are getting worse and worse. You still want to grow because this push to grow has kept your burn rate high. So you need more capital and to get more capital, you have to grow and set. And at some point, finally, the investors new and old realize that the growth is unprofitable and they basically <laughs> say no more. And then you get a down yeah. round, which um, for your listeners who may not know is just as simple as the equity sold is at a lower share price than the last round. And boy, that's bad news if you're holding stock options. Um, so you leave the company if you're an employee. And the thing can unravel really fast once um, nobody will put more money in. So that's the speed trap because you sort of slam the, right. you speed past the, the policeman with the radar detector <laughs> you know, heading, <laughs> heading at 80 miles an hour straight for a wall. My listeners would, I would think, hear this and think of some companies that are announcing SPACs or IPOs during the pandemic. Those were uh, almost assuredly folks, those were massively negative EBITDA wannabe unicorns. Yeah. And that's what that's what Tom's exactly. talking about, wannabe unicorns that are growing really, really fast. You and I, wink, wink, know they're making no money. And the only way you save yourself is getting right into the LP's Wall Street pockets directly. <laughs> yeah. There's more and more of that. But I think what I find interesting about the speed trap that's different in CPG is that, and it was really fascinating reading your book, is that in, institutional investors don't go anywhere near CPG companies that are selling less than 10 to $20 million in trailing. <clears throat> if it was in my footnotes in my book, it should have been 90% of the companies are below that. I mean, yeah. And they're, they're going to flame out for other reasons long before, you know, I don't, whatever VMG partners calls them up. That, I think my listeners don't realize the, the advantage of not having those people interested is huge. And your book really made me almost ecstatic. I'm like, this is actually a massive advantage. Because it forces you to have not only a decent gross margin business, but to be able to build on the backs of basically heavy users and stack the markets up very intelligently, um, add the accounts in a way that you can service them, pace the distribution. And every single tortoise that I've seen that scaled that slowly, quote unquote, haha, they're the ones who win every single time in my industry. That's what every single time. People have written off Spindrift multiple times. Because they're like, wait, wait, didn't VMG, didn't they put equity in like five years ago? Where is the business? Lance Collins can scale things in two years. What's there? What's it? You know, and it, they just don't understand the model. I teach an MBA elective called Entrepreneurial Failure. And the students do a paper at the end. They get to choose the topic. One of the things I let them do is a pre-mortem, not a post-mortem, but <laughs> pick a company that... Pick a company that exists, go into an imagined future where it has failed yeah. and write from the perspective of somebody who can explain why this failure happened. I had never heard of Switchel until a week ago when one of these papers was about one of those companies and uh, <laughs> entrepreneurs actually slowly making it work pretty well, but she is just yeah. absolutely exhausted, oh, yeah. exhausted. Yeah. It is, it's been such hard work. But I 
But I say that the fact that institutional capital doesn't have any, can't give you the time of day on that journey to what is an enormous achievement, which is 10 million in annual recurring revenue is a massive achievement for an entrepreneur in my industry. Unbelievably unlikely. That should give you the ability to say, you know, I don't care about my competition. You might care if someone did get a big seed round. But even then, you know, if someone's equally inexperienced and they get a million dollars and they're equally inexperienced to you, wouldn't you agree, Tom, that why are they more likely to succeed just because of that money? There's, I don't see no evidence. The check by itself is not like a... Um, It's easy to spend a million. Yeah, yeah I'm just curious. I mean, the winners you point to, this, the tortoises, have just done it from internal cash flow or do they, because it's oh, no. so capital intensive to launch these businesses. Angels? It's a common, it's mostly angel and seed money. Um, I have mm-hmm. had clients who are from, you know, basically 1% trust fund families, right? So they can start, Sure, they can start with family checks of a couple million, but even that, like a couple million sounds like a dream check to most listeners here. They would like die for that to start off with. But as you just mentioned, and I will tell people who are listening, you know, you will not flame out it in phase one up to half a million. Absolutely. It'll definitely carry you through. Absolutely. You just jump to seven figures. Hallelujah. But it just, <laughs> the faster you jump, man, without doing the things that Tom and I are talking about in introspection and studying your business and learning from it and tweaking it. It doesn't actually increase your odds, what's to say. Hey listeners, exponential growth involves more than a killer product, great fundraising, and a great team. You need superb analytics to ride the ramp. Dr. Richardson's latest online course is now available, Effective Consumer Marketing for Early Stage Founders. You can find course pricing and details at premiumgrowthsolutions.com slash courses. And now back to the episode. So you talk a lot about problem staffing up. And I, I've appreciated that discussion. It clarified a bunch of things for me that have been very messy. This help wanted theme was really powerful to me. Can you talk about the problems you've seen bringing in public firm alumni and talent directly, like passing go and going straight from, you know, craft foods to you? This can happen at any stage in a startup, but it's, mm-hmm. it's particularly big risk at the later stages. So after you've mm-hmm. scaled to some extent, I'll illustrate with a case that we use in the book to talk about this help wanted pattern. It's dot and bow and it's online retailing of home furnishings. So couches mm-hmm. and lamps and chairs and things like that. And there've been some pretty spectacular disasters in that space. Wayfair um, is a public company worth billions that has never made a nickel of profit. Um, <laughs> still don't but, understand. <laughs> exactly. Don't try. But but fab.com is is was also and you know they blew through 300 million and one King's Lane was sold to Bed Bath and Beyond for having been, you know, raised hundreds of millions of dollars was sold for 30 million or less. So this company actually found a good demand generation formula where they could sustain customer growth. And I won't get into the specifics. The founder and CEO was a TV guy and he'd learned TV storytelling and so he turned the room into an episode and the furnishings were characters. And people related to that in weird ways. They basically, you know, they wanted to keep all the characters together. So you're going to buy the chair and the lamp. And so they had big average order volume and good repurchase rates and so forth. And really strange because the problem that the competitors all had was, you know, they were paying a fortune for people who'd order once and disappear forever. 
But this guy, it turns out it's really hard to ship a couch from a warehouse in California to Kansas City because it's got to arrive on Tuesday morning when you took off from work. It's not like your Amazon books. If they come two days early, you're delighted. Right. Yeah, <laughs> It can't come early. It can't come late. And you don't want it to come damaged. And this is, turns out to be remarkably hard to do. Remarkably hard because the thing also was made in Asia, and you know you basically had to figure out is it actually in the warehouse in California before you commit to fill the order, and so this excellent demand generator could not get the operations under control. They bought the wrong ERP system, so they had no idea what was in inventory. They had no tracking of customer orders and ability to communicate with customers, and so his first solution was, well, let's get a seasoned chief operating officer type. And he hired a generalist, general manager who didn't know, is actually the person who did the wrong ERP system and couldn't get the operation. So the backlogs are growing, customer service queries are going unanswered. Round two is a dude from corporate guy from Netflix, Netflix now being a big corporation, who in theory knows something about shipping things. He shipped hundreds of millions of little red envelopes. But shipping a little red envelope is different than shipping a couch. So he gets some stuff under control because he's an experienced operations guy, but manages to piss off the founders because he's obviously doing corporate stuff. He's sort of massaging the numbers. So the things he's supposed to be working on look great, but he's ignoring all the other things. He's not thinking like an entrepreneur or an owner. And so they fire him, even though he's made some solid progress. And it took three tries, basically, before they found somebody who could get the operations under control. And the third guy did, but by then the company was had burned through so much cash yeah. and, and the e-commerce yeah. market slammed shut in 2015 yeah. and the company died. And so the point is, it's not just big company employees, and I, I'll come back to that, but it's sure. often the case that the CEO, founder, the entrepreneur will have experience in one function, but have no clue how to mm. even evaluate a candidate. They don't have a network rich with candidates. You know, it's not like I can just sort of go through my Rolodex and pick out the 17 people who, who will be good at this. And then even if you bring them in, I can't tell a good one from another one. So the world is just scaling startups rife with these hiring errors and these crucial functions. And boy, you have it screwed up for four months. You know, it takes you four or six months to figure out that's not working. And then another three or four months to fill the job. I mean, that's a long time in the lifetime of a startup to sort of go nine months with the wrong person in the role or nobody in the role. So help Wanda is, you know, how do you avoid this? And so the big company dysfunction can happen at any point in a startup's life. But the real problem is big company people are interrupt driven. Like the life of an executive in a big company yep. Yep. is just full of dozens and dozens per hour of, you know, messages and, and meetings and, and so forth. In a startup, especially an early stage startup, nothing happens unless you make it happen. Like the big company person will come and sit at his desk and like, okay, like where's my assistant who's coming in with the to-do yeah. list for today? Like ain't happening. Yeah. I have a um, metaphor, you know, they're reactive. They're not proactive. They're like the worst management consultant associate ever. And now notice that McKinsey, no, yeah. But notice at McKinsey, they get fired in like four months or less. Like if, yeah. even if you got Up through the hiring process, if you appear on the job of McKinsey or Bain with that attitude, like if you're not crucified by your own your own colleagues, the partners will get rid of you. <laughs> I just had this conversation. Um, I have a theory that management consultants, I have seen management consultants consistently do better uh, founding and operating early stage companies than 
employees of General Mills, Coca-Cola, you name it. With one exception, the people who come from the big companies that they kind of worked at one startup and screwed it up. <laughs> like sometimes they do figure it out by number two and three. I've seen yep. It rings very true. I'll, I'll give you the one cautionary note, but it rings okay. true. And it's basically because, I mean, you are under so much pressure. I, having spent 13 years as a management consultant, um, at mostly at <laughs> McKinsey, but also Buzel, that you get very oriented toward deliverables, right? At McKinsey, we called it end product orientation. And, you know, just <laughs> right from the start it's of the study, yeah, you are thinking, like, what do we need to deliver to the client to make a happy client, you know, solve the problem. And if you don't have end product orientation, you're right, you're fired. So and when you bring that same orientation, that's what a startup needs. The complicating factor, I would say, is a lot of management consultants are, how to say this politely, too smart for their own good. And <laughs> they can see patterns and connections where mere mortals won't see them. And they can actually, because they're articulate, super smart and articulate, they can sell it to investors, to people who are trying to figure out whether to join as employees and so forth. So you can, especially in a frothy capital market, like the bubble we seem to be in, yeah. you can get some very overcomplicated business models that seem plausible. And people that come out of management consulting are particularly good at conceiving these things and pushing them forward. And sometimes they work, but... Yeah, I would say that's a really insightful point, which is that the management consultant and the, the big co-bureaucrat do have one thing that they tend to do that's a really bad habit, and that's overthink. And I see this all the time. Well, I want to let you go. Thanks so much for your time. This has been great. Yeah, it was fun. A lot of fun. All right, everybody. That was the second part of my interview with Professor Tom Eisenman, author of Why Startups Fail. And that's a wrap, folks. As always, remember, be safe out there. Dr. Richardson's new book, Ramping Your Brand, is available now on Amazon. Please check it out and spread the word. And don't forget also to take his Founders Quiz to see if your team is ready to ride the ramp of exponential growth. You can download the quiz at rampingyourbrand.com anytime. And feel free to share your scores with Dr. Richardson anytime at james at premiumgrowthsolutions.com.